Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. It's been great. A couple of weeks having great guests on. Uh, this week is like no, is is not too dissimilar. This week we have Rebecca Nolan, aka T to Triceps, on the show. Uh, Rebecca is an MNU certified nutritionist. She did a bachelor's in psychology. She she's very. She puts a lot of very good content out on social media, particularly Instagram, and she runs a, a successful Q&A on her page every week, every Saturday, helping people with their aims and if they have any questions about supplements or anything to do with nutrition. But her particular passion is to deal with kind of the f- female side of health and nutrition. Um, but she also does this while having a normal day job. Um, so thank you very much, Rebecca, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking your lunch out to kind of come on. No problem. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so the first thing that I know some of the guys that I work with in particular would be kind of interested in hearing about is how you found the whole thing with the MNU um, and why you chose that over any of the other ones that are out there at the minute. Yeah, cool. Okay, so I'll give you like a bit of context to my background um, and then like what led me to make the decision to do MNU. So um, like you already said, I have a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Um, while I was doing my degree, about two years in, I started to get really, really interested in nutrition. So nutrition kind of became a hobby for me. And because I had, you know, the science-based background, I knew where to go for the right information. So I was able to ignore a lot of the media claims and the like pop nutrition that's out there and go kind of straight to the research and the evidence. Um, and I was, because of that, able to find some really, really great people. So people like Danny Lennon, who does Sigma Nutrition Podcast, started listening to that. Um, through that, I got more and more familiar with evidence-based practitioners like, you know, Lane Norton, Martin McDonald. Um, so I was very much um, ingrained in the evidence-based side of nutrition for um, a couple of years. Um, and then I knew that I wasn't going to be working in nutrition. It was always just a hobby for me um, because the career that I'm in, I, I really enjoy it. So when I was... Um, studying nutrition on my own I was like yeah no I don't want to do a course I mean I'd be interested in doing a course but there wasn't anything out there that kind of sold me um and then I heard Martin McDonald was working on MNU and he I was such a fangirl for Martin I just thought that like he's so no BS like really evidence-based um put out great content really honest um and I just admired him a lot and then he started talking about macronutrition and the way that the course was described was like everything that I had ever dreamed about a nutrition course, like completely evidence-based, really practical, like not too much of a time commitment so I could do it alongside my full-time job, all of these different kinds of things. But at the same time, I was kind of um, hesitant because of the cost. Um, and I was like, look, I'm not I'm not actually a practitioner of nutrition. Like I do this because I'm interested in that it's my hobby. Should I be making such an investment to do a course that I'm not actually going to be using for my job. Um, so I was having a lot of like, back and forth with myself. No. Um, the first enrollment opened. Um, and I get, at the same time, I was like deliberating. I was like, oh, will I? Won't I? Is it worth it? And I think it was Danny that then did a podcast. And I can't remember if it was Martin came on the podcast or if it was just Danny talking about the course. But the way it was described just sold me completely. I was like, it's worth it. Like, it's worth the money because it's something that I'm so passionate about and I'm, it's going to push me out of the areas that I'm used to studying. Like, I was always very focused on nutritional, um, like my personal interest, whereas this was going to open up more avenues. So things like clinical nutrition, areas that I had never really explored on my own. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up. So I signed up to do MNU um, and it was completely worth it. Like, my experience with MNU was fantastic and I'm like a huge ambassador for it I'm, I tell everybody to do it 
And if you're working in the industry, like if you're a nutritionist already, I know people who've done bachelor's in nutrition. I know people who have master's in nutrition who do the course and endorse it. Um, PTs or people like me who just have a general interest in nutrition, but they want the right information and like detailed information for their own sort of knowledge. So yeah, in summary, it's amazing, and I highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, it was interesting. To, uh, I know I, speak, I had a podcast recently with Robin Das, who's a fully qualified nutritionist, a lecturer in UCD, and now he's working with Dundalk Football Club as a sports nutritionist. And he was kind of saying the difference between his bachelor's degree and MNU was the ability to apply the knowledge to sort of to say John or Mary sitting across the desk from you. From when he was in college, it was all at really evidence-based and kind of driven towards like a PhD with MNU it's being able to apply it for day-to-day use I think that's the bit that sold me as well so I was interested to hear his ideas and your kind of take on it as well um the, we had a I had a, a big sh- big shout out to you for kind of promoting myself on your Instagram page last night and the Q&A that I ran a lot of a lot of questions came in um, we're going to do a Q&A at the end, but I have a couple of questions that I think this episode will probably be mainly towards kind of the female side of things, because I know that's what you're really passionate about. Yeah. So I know one of the biggest myths that uh, Martin talks about, in particular with MNU, is kind of the myths about fat. And some people, the evidence, or not the, well, the, the old kind of saying was the fats were bad for you would you be able to kind of go into a little bit more detail and say the fats aren't bad for you or they are bad for you or would you be able to just go into that a little bit more for me please yeah absolutely um stop me if i go off on tangents because i have a tendency to waffle (laughs) tangents are great (laughs) i'll go at like a high level and then try and get more granular okay so i think a huge misconception around fat in the first place is that the fat that you eat is the fat that's stored on your body and that's just not how it works um, fat is broken down in our digestive system and it's used for different purposes. So, for example, cholesterol, there was a huge thing about cholesterol for years. You know, cholesterol is so bad for you. Don't eat any cholesterol if you want to have healthy blood marker levels. Um, but now we know, like, cholesterol is actually really, really important for bodily functions. So hormones are made from cholesterol. Um, cholesterol is synthesized to make vitamin D or exposed to sunlight. So all of these things are really really important bodily purposes that we need fats for so it's not the case that you eat fat and then it immediately gets deposited on your body that's the total opposite of how things really work um so just on a fundamental level fat is important and it's really essential for health um when we talk about body fat um that like the way that you gain body fat as i'm sure many people on this podcast have said before it's um being in a calorie surplus so it's eating too much food as a whole um it's not because you've eaten too much fat. It's not because you've eaten too much sugar, which is another common one. It's because you've eaten too many calories as a whole. Um, so calories are just energy. Um, so your body stores that energy um, to use at a time when maybe there's less food available or for exercise, things like that. So fat it, as a food itself is not the reason that people gain body fat. Additionally, there's a lot of myths out there about you know, certain types of fat being better than other types of fat. So, for example, coconut oil was a really big thing a while ago. So people thought that coconut oil was a superfood and that other types of fat or oils were, like, less superior. If we look at the research on that, there's really not that strong of a case that coconut oil is any better than other oil. It was kind of like a selling, a marketing thing through the media to promote coconut oil. Um, 
Another thing that comes under best of the time is saturated fat. Um, the reason that saturated fat gets under fire is that there were such observational studies which noticed that higher saturated fat intake levels were linked with uh, poor health markers. But those observational studies are kind of flawed in a sense because they look at people and they try to draw conclusions, whereas they, they kind of saw, you know, saturated fat intake level was high and so was poor health markers. But other things that kind of affected those poor health markers were that these people smoked, they didn't eat many vegetables, they were had quite sedentary lifestyles. Um, so all of these things play into why somebody may have unhealth, like be unhealthy, not necessarily saturated fat intake. So when we look at healthy populations and their levels of saturated fat, it doesn't seem to be saturated fat that affects anything negative as such. What's important for health is like a balanced diet, full of vegetables, full of nutrients, being active. And if you have all of these variables um, like that kind of make a healthy lifestyle, your saturated fat intake is not something you need to worry about. So fat is like a very complex topic and there's so many different fears that people have about it, like body fat and then health reasons. But really like what I always preach about is just having a balanced, healthy lifestyle and not focusing so much on the minutia of like your fat intake or your sugar intake. Try to consider for the bigger variables that kind of holistic approach to nutrition and lifestyle perfect i know what you put up a post recently that had, had so many likes and so many shares and stuff was regarding the menstrual cycle i know with the majority of my clients my face-to-face clients and my online clients would be uh, female so the menstrual cycle is something that women don't really like to talk about let alone males like to talk about so i know when i first started doing the, the kind of the initial face-to-face consultations with females I struggled to talk about it and then I watched a lecture on lift the bar um, and it opened my mind completely to how not one female is the same and I just couldn't get over that completely. Like I have girls that can blow, carry water, severe cramps, have to take tablets to kind of have their periods at particular times. So they, oh, they're, they're so different. Is there any, and some people get cravings, some people don't get cravings. Is there any kind of tips that you would have or any foods that you would kind of say to someone that they could eat or would would recommend to eat when they're kind of coming up to their menstrual cycle or while they're on their menstrual cycle, not to kind of implode or kind of go off their diet severely? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what you said there, though, at the start, actually really important that there's this kind of taboo in talking about female menstrual cycle, especially as a male. But it's like, if you, if you work in nutrition, you literally need to ask people about their bowel habits. So it, it kind of, you get desensitized to it over time, but you can definitely see why as like a first-time practitioner, or if you're not a nutritionist as a PT, that can be a bit difficult to bring up, especially on the PT side, because while they may not be dealing with somebody's nutrition, like menstrual cycle can affect people's performance in the gym. They may not be able to train. They, it can affect their training that they're just weaker, uh, clumsier like it, it those kind of uh, different fluctuating hormones can have a massive impact in multiple markers like both nutrition and performance so it is something that's really important to talk about and I'd encourage people to just be really direct about it like on your consultation form have something that inquires you know are you regular uh, do you get bad PMS um, what are your symptoms do you like to exercise on that week like and just inquired about it because it's it's a huge part of a female's life so it's really important to talk about um so with regards to the nutrition side uh i think like foods for the period is a bit of a like media thing but it's not got much too much backing to it um if you just look at it kind of 
as it is, um, what's happening is that you're going to be losing blood, so you need to look at your iron levels. Uh, females are much more likely to be- develop anemia because of that loss of blood, and they don't tend to eat as much red meat as males or high iron. So I would encourage people to get their bloods tested to check their iron levels and just make sure they're in the right um, zone. And if you're if they're not, take an iron supplement. Um, and as well, I would kind of encourage people to, if they do eat red meat, eat more red meat around that time. Uh, just kind of bring your iron levels up a bit. And if you don't eat red meat, supplement at least on that week. Oh, yeah. uh, I think in regards to like for. cramps or the symptoms of PMS, um, I think it's about 20% of women have clinical symptoms of PMS, but up to 40% of women have PMS in general. So cramping, bloating, uh, water retention, all of these things are common PMS symptoms. Uh, for symptoms of PMS, there are some supplements that can help. So there's a, a lesser known one. It's called Vitex, Vitex acetastis, and it's a herb um, and that you can buy it in concentrated pill format, and it helps to alleviate PMS symptoms. It's not very well known, but I'm not sure why because it actually does have a fair amount of research behind it. So that one can help. Um, You can get it in some pharmacies or I recommend ordering it online. Uh, Other things that can help, uh, there's some research to show that different minerals can help. There's things like um, iron, calcium, magnesium and zinc. These are all things that, there's some research there to show that additional supplementation on top of the diet can help with some PMS symptoms. Um, one of the things that are out there about PMS that I've seen from some nutrition therapies is that people say that it's a hormonal imbalance. And that's something that I'm trying to dispel as cause, because it's a myth. Um, nutrition, some nutritional therapists say that you know PMS is not normal. And it's because you have a nutrient deficiency or it's because your hormones are imbalanced and it can be fixed through nutrition. That's just not true. It's like we know through the research that uh, PMS is completely normal and the individual response to hormone levels is just that. It's an individual response. For some person to have stronger PMS symptoms than another is entirely normal. And it doesn't mean that you're imbalanced or you need to eat like a particular type of food to adjust that imbalance. Um, so, yeah, just to put that out there, if you hear that it's like not if you're not normal or, you know, you're imbalanced in any way, that those are myths. And we have the evidence to say that those are myths. Um, yeah. So that would be managing PMS symptoms. Um, managing cravings is a very difficult one um, because, everybody, again, some people get cravings. Others don't. I don't get cravings, but somebody I'm very good friends with is like, I need to eat everything. I'm so hungry all the time in the week leading up to her period. So I do have strategies that I recommend to people, but I do think it's really individual. So I would rather work on one with a person and kind of figure out what is it that you're craving and what have you used in the past to deal with this. But some general tips that I like to give to people is that if you're a person who tracks calories, increase your calories on the week um, where you get those cravings. Allow yourself a bit of extra food. Um, don't like try and restrict yourself massively that you're then eating loads of food because you feel so restricted. Um, kind of allow for it Um, another thing is if you're craving something it's totally okay to have it like you don't need to eat an entire packet of cookies you can have maybe two or three cookies and then put it away you can satisfy your cravings in particular ways and that's totally fine don't feel bad because you crave some cookies and you ate them it's that's normal and it's fine Um, another tip is that like just for cravings in general is don't be afraid like um 
kind of food sugar replacements. So things like I want to eat if you want something sweet or you know, a diet drink is totally fine. Um, things like that that will kind of satisfy your sweet tooth without like sending you massively over on your energy intake. Um, getting enough sleep. We know that sleep can impact cravings a lot. Um, can also be a good tip. Well, that's that's amazing. I think that one of the other things I know that I've kind of researched, seen as well is kind of some people kind of have sugar cravings. And one of the tactics that I heard was kind of increasing your fruit intake. But some people then have the IBS issue that too much fruit can just give them have a laxative effect. So fruit's also a good kind of uh, benefit for you guys. And then one of the questions I get kind of asked a lot as a PT is dealing with kind of meal frequency frequency and the effects on the metabolism that they kind of think some people think that if they don't eat every two or three hours that their metabolism will get will slow down or whatever would you have uh, what would you kind of say on that regard okay so i think when people talk about metabolism they think of one thing whereas metabolism is like um, an umbrella term for multiple different processes so your metabolism is made up of so much it's like your brain like the calories used by your brain the calories used by your organs the calories you need for walking, exercise, your body temperature, like so many different processes go into what makes up your metabolism. Your metabolism is ultimately like how, like your energy out, so how many energy, how much energy you're using, your body is using every day, and so many things go into that, like, and it can be affected by a lot of things as well. One of the things that is not affected by is how often you're eating. Uh, your metabolism, like your body temperature, your brain function like you walking around doesn't stop because you don't eat every two to three hours uh so when we talk about metabolism and we talk about all the things that go into metabolism it's huge you would have to focus on one variable of metabolism and try and alter that in order to change your metabolism or adjust your metabolism slow it or speed it up and the body just work like that um so like eating every two to three hours to like speak the metabolic fire it's just not true. Your metabolism doesn't slow or speed up because of how frequently you're eating. It can slow or speed up, even though I don't like those terms, um, based off your energy intake as a whole. So we know that people who are eating a lot, a lot of food, they can get um, like very warm and they'll get a higher body temperature. And that's your body's reaction to kind of trying to keep your metabolism or your metabolic rate at a consistent uh, point. So your body's really, really good at regulating itself and keep trying to keep your metabolic rate consistent. So you're not eating every few hours. Your body's just going to compensate and it's going to keep going. It's going to stay at the same rate. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very common myth, um, but it's completely unfounded. That, that, that's an awesome answer. I'm glad you kind of, you had a pretty thorough answer on that. So I think that's going to help the, the listeners. One of the other things that seems to be the biggest thing at the minute is the you post about it or a slight mini rant about it was that the use of my fitness pal to count calories. I personally I try for someone who has never tracked calories and who is overweight and is looking to come in and trying to lose the pounds, I personally use it just short term. Um I know some people detest the thing completely. What would your kind of, for the listeners who haven't, who don't follow you or who haven't read that post, would you kind of go in a little bit more on my fitness pal and then alternatives? Because I know that you mentioned a great alternative on your post as well. Would you be able to kind of embellish on that a little bit more, please? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think 
that post was slightly misinterpreted by people who just think that I outright hate my fitness pal and I don't want anybody to use it. And that's not that's not where I was coming from. Um, I think a lot of people, when they start to try to make changes to their nutrition, my fitness pal is such a well-known name and it's a very well-known app. So people download the app, they put in their measurements, they'll put in like their height, their weight, their goal, and the app will throw back at them a calorie number. And this is where I have the issue. So the calorie calculator part of my fitness pal has been broken for years. I mean, like, I think it was about five years ago I realized this. So it's remained broken for the last five years. It tells people to eat way too little. So people are not eating enough when they're using my fitness pal or, like, using it to work out their calories. If you were to use any, like, proper nutrition calculator so like for example one that uses the harris benedict equation to work out calories you will get a higher number than what my fitness pal is telling you to use as a tracking tool i think my fitness pal is good um the main merit to it is that the database that it has food is amazing so it's got like so many people like millions of people from around the world have scanned and entered different foods so you can pretty much pick up any packet scan the barcode and it will be there in the app like you don't need to kind of enter the details yourself so that's where it's merit is because no other app has a as a comprehensive database as that so as a tracking tool i don't mind it i think it's fine um as a calorie calculator i do not recommend people use it i also don't recommend that people use the um like the exercise feature part of it the like work out how many calories you've burned and tell you to eat those back um how many calories you burn through exercise is so difficult to measure unless you're like in a metabolic ward and getting technical tests done so the app estimate tends to be massively off and people will eat back calories and think that they're eating for weight loss or weight gain or weight maintenance but actually be eating the wrong numbers entirely so basically i recommend that people use my fitness pal as a tracking tool and that's it um, the alternative that I recommend is just a calorie calculator that I like to use online. Um, the reason that I tend to pe- tend to send people towards that one is that, first of all, it uses the equations that I would use to work out some of these calories. And secondly, it gives so much information about what is a meta- metabolic rate, what's your basal metabolic rate, um, what's your activity level, and like all of the things that go into working out some of these calories. Um, so that's the reason that I link people to it. But I can send you the link for it, so if you want to include it, like yeah, that would be great. I'll put that up on the on the post that I include and I'm putting out the uh, the podcast. One of the other things that's kind of everyone seems to be on the go all the time. The kind of people are struggling with sleep. They're kind of some people maybe a little bit run down. And one of the things that's kind of become more prevalent that you see in chemists and shops now is the kind of the use of multivitamins. What's your take on multivitamins? And if it's not multivitamins, what do you think are the two or three kind of key vitamins to kind of include on a kind of a daily basis or a weekly basis? So multivitamins in general, through the research, we know that they're not always necessary. Most people don't need to take a multivitamin, a multivitamin, but also most people are deficient in a couple of things. So they should be taking those supplements, but a multivitamin like isn't always necessary. Um. Also, just in general, when it comes to supplements, I'm kind of stringent about what advice I give to people. Uh, you can walk into any supermarket and pick up like the supermarket brand vitamins, but a lot of the time the ingredients aren't high quality and the dosage isn't that great. 
Um, also, the recommended daily intakes of a lot of vitamins and minerals at the moment, um, like the, the common guidelines, are too low. So a lot of the time you'll be taking a supplement that's like 100% of the RDA, but that's not going to be enough to correct a deficiency that you may have. So yeah, dosage, ingredient quality is something that I always encourage people to look out for. Um, in regards to actually taking a multivitamin or vitamins, like supplementing in general, um, a blanket one that I tend to recommend is vitamin D. Um, vitamin D, I think, is just like the coolest vitamin ever. It's so interesting. Um, I like constantly shouting back about vitamin D because I think it's so cool. Um, but most people are deficient in vitamin D. The reason that that happens is that most people, if you, unless you live on the equator, you are not going to be getting vitamin D from sunlight throughout a large portion of the year. Um, because the way that vitamin D is synthesized in the skin is based off the UV exposure from the sun. And that all sounds really complicated when basically just like the sun is too far away from the earth most of the year for you to be making vitamin D through sun exposure. So you should supplement because not only are people not outside that often, when you are outside, you're probably not getting vitamin D from the sun anyway. And we know that vitamin D supplementation has a lot of benefits. So even in people who aren't deficient in vitamin D, supplementing has like a lot of benefits. So cognitive ability is improved. Um, if you're sleep deprived, you have better cognitive performance. Uh, immune system function is improved. Uh, like all of these things get a lot better with vitamin D supplementation. So that's kind of one blanket one that I recommend. Um, the other one would be if you eat a lot of fish, fish oils. Uh, we like there's, it's a bit of a, um, hot topic moment whether fish oils are a great supplement to be taking but I think that the weight of the evidence is towards them being very very beneficial for health um, and absolutely no harm in taking them so that's not what I tend to recommend. Gotcha. For females like I mentioned earlier iron sometimes um, and if you're not a person who eats a lot of vegetables we know that most people who don't eat a lot of vegetables are deficient in magnesium. So if you fall into any, like if you're female and you don't eat a lot of red meat, iron, if you're somebody who doesn't eat a lot of vegetables, magnesium, um, apart from that, people don't tend to have too many deficiencies. So taking multivitamin isn't that beneficial because you're probably not deficient. So I would encourage people to get bloods done and kind of do you have any deficiencies and then supplementing for those deficiencies rather than tr trying to take a broad multivitamin in case you might have one and it, the supplement might not be that high quality. So kind of have a symptom and then treat it rather than kind of having, like taking something for no proper reason. Or self-diagnosing, which a lot of people seem to do these days. Um, one of the other things is, I know you, you post a lot about kind of the protein bars. You, you uh, do a lot of kind of uh, recommendations on protein bars and stuff like that. What do you make of the the craze of the protein bar at the minute? Um, would you kind of include it on a daily basis, or what would be your kind of suggestions on those? Okay, so I think it depends. It's going to be my answer. Would I recommend them to somebody? Um, I did a post on this, which I think it's the most controversial post I've ever written. But basically, the, a lot of the time, the protein that is used in protein bars is really poor quality. So a protein bar might be 20 grams of protein in a serving, but how much protein you're actually getting and is actually being used for like muscle or whatever it is, is maybe like 10, maybe less than 10 grams. Another issue that I have with them is that people are viewing them as health food. So maybe when people would have snacked on like 
popcorn or something, they're having a protein bar instead. I do think that people should be increasing their protein intakes as a whole. Um, there's a lot of benefit to increase protein intake in people's diet, but I'm not sure if that's the right method because it's not it's not always good quality, and it's also they do tend to be like quite calorie dense. So if somebody is kind of scooping their usual 100 calorie snack for like a 200 calorie protein bar. Is that a really good trade off? I would rather have somebody eat something like Greek yogurt or more real foods than kind of supplementing their protein through a bar. Now. In the case if you're like an athlete and you have a really high protein target to hit every day, is a protein bar a problem? Absolutely not. I think it depends on who's using them, like how often and why. So for an athlete who has like say 160 grams of protein to hit every day, is a protein bar going to help them get there? Yes. Is it enjoyable? Yes. So go ahead. You're going to get like 140 grams of real food. Totally fine. If you're like average person who doesn't go to the gym or like maybe you go to the gym every so often and you're relying on protein bars for your protein like as a health food i don't think that's a good idea perfect i, I really like that answer because it seems to be prevalent to think that people as soon as they see protein before a certain word or a protein bar protein cereal or something like that they associate it being healthy so it's it, it's kind of like what you mentioned earlier about that the marketing behind it is almost fueling it, which which is ultimately disappointing, but it's just the way that it's happening. And then that kind of leads in with the kind of the, the next question regarding, so say if you're out doing your shopping on a weekly basis, are there any little hidden gems that you would recommend to someone that would help them feel a little bit healthy or kind of like almost a cheeky little treat? I don't really like using the word treat, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I started an Instagram page was just to show people, like, what I was eating to hit my health and fitness goals. So, like, that's pretty much all over my page. Um, there are, like, a few things that I've become known for, like, really pushing. Uh, one of those is 0% fat Greek yogurt. It's, like, one of my favorite foods, and you can do so much with it. Um, the one that I'm, like, going on about, which is a bit random, but it's black bean spaghetti. So it's spaghetti that's made from black beans. And the calories on it are really, really good. But more importantly than that, it's made from a vegetable, so it's quite nutrient dense. And then also the protein content of it is amazing. It's like it's got more protein in it than carbohydrate, which for a pasta is unheard of. And because I'm, this is the most important part, it does taste like really, really good. So black bean spaghetti, you can get it in Aldi in the special section every like two or three months they bring it in. And I just recommend buying like five boxes because it sells out really quickly because I'm always going out about it. Um, so that those are two. And then let me think what else. I'm very much a person that I'm like 80% of your intake should be vegetables, whole foods, like nutrient-dense, lean protein sources. But that other 20%, I'm like, do whatever you want. Like, I don't like healthy alternatives to, like, real food. So, like, if you want chocolate, don't be going for the, like, gluten-free, dairy-free chocolate that also has added stuff in it. Like, go for the chocolate that you want. Include that. Have it in moderation. Like, balance is really, really important. So the whole, like, healthy swaps thing, to a certain extent, you can do that, and that's fine. But if you want something, like, and you want to use like 20% of your intake for that, that's really good. And we know through the research that more flexible diets um, have better adherence. The more variability you have in your diet, the more nutrients you, you're intaking. So, like, having that kind of flexible approach and being like, yeah, I can have some chocolate if I wanted, or I can have some ice cream if I've eaten, like, 10 servings of vegetables today, it's totally fine. Having that mindset 
will lead you to longer term success. Um, let me see, do I have any other tips, I wonder? Hmm. Can't think of anything right now, but if I do, I'll just send you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw you mention the, the black bean spaghetti. I think the, the 0% Greek yogurt seems to be a big thing, uh, particularly amongst my clients anyway, because they like to have it for breakfast. It's not too heavy, and they stick their berries in or whatever, so it's a nice little mix for them in the mornings, which, which is great. Uh, and then... I know you kind of thank you so much for doing the promoting the Q and A that I put up on my page last night. I got so many responses and it was it was it was great. My phone wouldn't stop. Like I came home last night and you just promoted it and my phone just started going mental. So I woke up this morning. I normally put my phone on nightmare flight mode and I woke up to so many more messages. So I sent you over some of them and a few more have kind of come in since we spoke as well. So one of the big things at the minute that's around is kind of the vegan diet. And one of the girls uh, I'm actually saying, is there any kind of typical food sources that you would recommend to kind of get 120 grams of protein? Because vegans do struggle to get their protein levels up high enough. Yeah. So I think that is, you know, the whole January thing is in. So like becoming a vegan for January, that is a really bad and dangerous trend. So this might be controversial to some people, and I'm sorry if it is, but you should not decide to go vegan for health reasons because any diet that requires supplementation in order to have optimal health is not a good healthy diet because you have to supplement um so what i would say to people is that if you ha if you're a vegan for like ethical environmental you know moral reasons absolutely do your thing that's fantastic and i support you but if you're going vegan because you think it's healthier or for any reason like that, I would encourage you to kind of think a bit more critically about it and try to ask yourself, why do you feel that you can't be healthy um, being a vegetarian even or being um, like an omnivore? A vegan diet has a lot of restriction in it and it always um, requires supplementation like things like B12 and iron because of the deficiencies it creates. And I, I'm just not an advocate for that for health reasons. However, for like ethical, environmental reasons, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. That's, I admire people who do that. Um, in terms of protein sources, you are really limited. Um, but So vegetables do have protein in them, but you have to eat a lot more vegetables in order to get that protein. And something that's important for people to know is that vegetables do not contain all of the essential amino acids that we need. So you, it's important that you mix up vegetable sources in order to be getting a range of amino acids again so you prevent deficiencies. Really good sources of vegan protein tend to come primarily from soy. So things like uh, tofu or seitan or tempeh, they're really great. Um, I think like nutritional yeast has a fair amount of protein in it as well, but people tend to like sprinkle that on top of foods more than actually eat it because it's kind of like a, it's similar to cheese. It's like a vegan alternative to cheese. But if you could bake that into something or put it in a sauce, that would increase the protein content. I'm not going to lie, I think getting 120 grams of protein, like purely from vegan food, would be quite hard. I would encourage some bit of supplementation, so something like a soy protein, really good quality, uh, you know, make a smoothie in the morning, put soy protein in it, or even if you just want to get a nice flavoured one and have it as a protein shake. Uh, and I, I'm, I think there's a misconception that protein powders are only for people who exercise. They're absolutely not. They're a supplement, so they should be an addition to your diet. But if you're struggling to get enough protein, soy protein is a really high quality, healthy source of protein. So I encourage that kind of thing as well. That's an awesome answer. Um, one of the questions that came up was kind of January is kind of 
the new year, new me outlook, and people seem to be going on diets. Uh, some people seem to be kind of going on crash course diets. Some people seem to be going on kind of not so crash course diets. One of the questions that came up was regarding diet breaks. How, what is a diet break and how would you recommend to do it? Okay, this could be an entire podcast. I know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so, okay. If you've been dieting for a while, uh, you're, maybe I should rewind. Okay, say somebody wants to lose weight, okay? So they decide to diet. Uh, They're going to be dieting for a period of time. And after a certain period of time, people may want to do a diet break or a coach, like the nutritionist that they're working with, will want to do a diet break. So what is a diet break? It's a period of time where rather than being uh, driven by weight loss, so your goal is not weight loss, it's weight maintenance. So you're just trying to maintain your weight for a week to two weeks, maybe a bit longer, it could be an entire month. It is a break from the deficit that you're in where your goal is losing weight. And it is a period of time spent focusing on weight maintenance. Um, when should you do it? Is It really depends on the person. If you have a really lean athlete who's like really in the depths of um, a calorie deficit, you might want do one more frequently. If you have a person who has a, a lot of weight to lose, maybe they would need one more infrequently because they don't have that um, massive level of restriction and that leanness and the hunger that they're battling with yet. Um, I would say for most people, maybe about if you've been dieting for about two months, you could do with taking a diet break. Um, and then that begs the question, of why would you do a diet break? So what is the benefit and what comes with it? So the main benefit that we know is there's a huge psychological benefit to it. Um, being uh, Regardless of how flexible your approach is to weight loss and how easy you may find a diet, there's always going to be some level of restriction when trying to lose weight, whether that be like uh, tracking calories and the calorie restriction or just eating less food and dealing with a bit of hunger. So that can build over time. People can get a bit run down. Um, so the psychological break of being able to eat a bit more food and just focus on weight maintenance rather than weight loss can be a welcome mental break. So the psychological benefit is definitely there. People enjoy being able to eat more food um, and it kind of like resets them for the next block of dieting so that they feel a bit more energized and ready to go into the next block rather than months and months of consistent dieting. Uh, the other thing that it helps with that we know for sure is um, performance. So if you have an athlete who's dieting and they've uh, been in a deficit for a while, their glycogen stores are kind of low, their energy levels might not be there, and having a diet break refills glycogen stores, you're eating loads of carbs, not loads, but up to maintenance carbohydrate intake, um, and you're just getting more energy, and it's just like it's a lot less stressful. So generally that has some kind of carryover into training and gym performance. The benefits that we are not entirely sure of, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence for, would be around metabolic adaptation. And this is why I say like this could be an entire podcast on its own, because this is a really complex area. Um, But there's a lot of theories and there's studies being done on this at the moment, like really, really exciting studies, um, long term controlled trials looking at how do diet breaks impact the hormones that are involved in the dieting process. So we know that dieting uh, reduces some levels, uh, like levels of certain hormones and increases levels of other hormones. So for example, or a hormone that controls how satisfied we are with food um, and how full we get drops when we diet and or hormone that is involved with hunger and how hungry we get increases when we diet. So when you lose fat, these hormones get adjusted. What a diet break could potentially do is restore these hormones and other hormones to pre-diet levels. So kind of adjusting 
those hormones back up to pre-diet levels so you're more satisfied with food less hungry and let like kind of undoing some of the adaptation that comes just comes along with dieting but again there's not that much evidence there yet for this um, but there's a lot of exciting studies being done Um, and one other thing to do with diet breaks is that the length is important Um, a lot of the time they get a bit confused with refeeds a refeed is a one to two days of just bringing your calories up to maintenance and eating more carbohydrates primarily there is not strong evidence for refeeds other than the psychological benefit. We know that they don't have an impact on the whole metabolic metabolic adaptation that I just mentioned. Uh, whereas diet breaks seem to be more promising because it's a more it's like a more prolonged period of increased calories, and it seems to have more of an impact on those kind of dieting markers. That's a, that's an awesome answer. Thank you so much for that, especially with kind of the refeeds and stuff like that. Especially because more and more people are kind of trying to like especially with kind of spring classics and the bodybuilding stuff and that's all coming up and a lot of people kind of go into the refeeds and we've got bodybuilders in our gyms and they're they're starting their 15 weeks of hell now so i don't envy them at all uh yeah one refeeds the- are really great for a psycho- psychological perspective yeah, like wrong, i think that they have their place but as well at the same time like generally refeeds are structured by low fat and just increasing your carbs so even reducing your fat intake somewhat and just getting all those calories from carbs we know that that doesn't work. That means we can be a bit more flexible in prescribing refeeds. So maybe it's just hit your maintenance calories and eat the foods that you would enjoy. Potentially, that's not carbohydrate-based food. It could be like more fatty foods. And that's totally fine because we know that it's not having like physiological impact so much as it is psychological impacts, which are more important. Awesome. Um, one of the things I'm going to know is to kind of tip down the menstrual cycle and stuff like that. But one of the, one of the questions, and I know you put a post up on it as well, was regarding kind of nutrition supplement guidelines for someone that may have lost their menstrual cycle recently, either through excessive dieting or excessive exercising or both. Would you have any kind of recommendations or guidelines on those? Yeah. So my one recommendation is eat more food. That's it. Like if you've lost, first of all, if you've lost your period, that's really dangerous. Um, If you're a female and you've lost your period, your your health is at risk like it's not like oh I just I only just lost my period so I can't have many uh, negative health impacts it's like no you lost your period and that would have been after a longer time of restriction and not eating enough food so all of these um kind of negative health consequences build and then you lose your period so you've already been probably quite a sustained amount of time where you haven't been eating enough now your period is gone and if that continues it has even negative consequences so a lot of people don't want to hear, like, they're, they're kind of like, oh, I know it's bad for me, but I, I hit goal, so I don't really care right now. Um, and try to kind of instill in people, you know, you need to solve this right now before it gets any worse, or you in the future will have so many health complications. Like, potentially, for athletes, quite common, like, sprains, broken bones, ruining their career as an athlete or taking a lot of sport for a long period of time um your fertility can be impacted your cognitive function your immune system like so many so many things can happen and your period is a giant warning sign that you need to eat more um there's some evidence out there that like it can do body fat it can be body fat level however no through kind of more controlled trials that it most of it comes into down to the food that you're eating, the amount of food that you're eating. You need to eat more, and you need to eat more now, and that might come with some weight gain, but that some weight gain is so much 
where like it's so inconsequential compared to just improving your health. So my number one nutrition tip for somebody who's off their period due to dieting or exercise is eat more. And also if you can try to slightly reduce exercise, try to reduce your stress somewhat. But if you can't do that, just eat more food. Okay, that's amazing because I know I know someone personally that uh, has lost theirs recently or has has lost theirs a little while ago. So I think that and I know they will be listening because they sent me a message yesterday, and that was one of the questions they asked me. So it's it's yeah. close to home, so it's nice. Um, I can actually talk about this for like a lot longer because it's I, so basically what happened is a few girls reached out to me about this, and I wrote that post um talking about period loss. And after I wrote that post, I mean, I mean, I think at this point it must be forty women who've reached out to me saying that oh yeah I lost my period like because I was dieting or because I was exercising or whatever it is and like historically we know that female athletes um it's quite a lot something called female athlete triad and that's something that's well established in the literature but what I'm seeing now is that it's not athletes it's casual sports, casual dieters like people, girls who just want to lose some weight it's not people who have a career in a in like sport and that's really alarming that we've kind of set up this culture where they'll think that it's okay or somewhat normal to lose their period because they're just trying to lose some fat or because they're just, you know, going to the gym every so often. Um, casual gym goers are now losing their periods and women feel like they have to die to such an extreme that this happens and that's so dangerous. Um, so I think it's really surprising that it's gone from, like, athletes into just general population girls. Um, and I just want to like emphasize that it is so dangerous for your health if you've lost your period and like it, it can be really awful for people to hear like after a period of dieting like this that they need to eat more and they may need to gain some weight like that's the absolute last thing a girl wants to hear but if you if you kind of try to take yourself out of the present moment and like the progress that you've made maybe and all of these things and you focus on like long term like do you want to have kids and do you want to be functional when you're older all of these things will be impacted by what you're doing right now um, and also, if you are going to the gym and things like that, it can massively impact your performance. It can massively impact your metabolic health. So it's, it can impact different parts of your life. Um, it's not worth that sacrifice for the short-term progress you might be making. Um, so I strongly encourage people to increase their calories. And people always ask me, okay, how much more do I need to eat? It's like, keep upping that number until you get it back. And again, that might come with some weight gain, but that's okay because it's you're saving your health. Um, we know that number that people should be eating around is maybe between 40 and 45 calories per kilogram of muscle that you have or per, per kilogram of lean body mass, which can be kind of difficult to work out. But there's a broad range if somebody wants, or narrow range if somebody wants to kind of do the math for themselves. I mean, that's an awesome answer. I can see you're really passionate about that side of things. And it's a big, it's, it's a big one for you. Um, one of the kind of the key questions I know Martin uh, talks a lot about the nutrition myths and stuff. What would be the nutrition myth that that that's out there that you would like to get rid of and why? Mine is the carbs. Oh my god, there's so many. Mine's the carbs. I just think that so for so long, so many people thought they couldn't eat carbs after six o'clock, and then now it's just like carbs are great. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of torn, like there's so many things that annoy me and like that I wish <laughs> get rid of like I'm kind of torn between you know like sugar fat or calories like and like I think calorie deficit is becoming a lot more mainstream of a word and I think when people hear that word they think oh I have to track calories and I 
don't like that myth and then the whole like you have to track macros all of these things annoy me but that's really specific so I think a more common one is sugar is bad for you and sugar is the cause of all ill um but maybe if I could eliminate that one that would be great that that's a pretty good one because I know that that, that is a that was one of the ones that when we were growing up and stuff like that that would have been out there a lot um yeah. One of the other things that kind of seems to be a big prevalence, probably through the likes of Larry Doyle and other people, is the prevalence of kind of slow cookers. So does cooking vegetables in a slow cooker uh, make them lose their nutrients? No. Um, Unless your vegetables are like cremated, like to the point where they're unrecognisable or like cooked to the point where all of the colour is gone from them and they're like mushy you don't need to worry about nutrients being gone from them. Uh, that's, yeah, don't worry about that. It's totally fine. They won't use nutrients from cooking. So we're nearly there. We've got two more Q&A questions. What tips would you have someone to cope with kind of the, the binge eating? This is a very tricky question for a lot of people, and I find it difficult enough to understand because there's so many different... There could, it could be a psychological issue. It could be something else. What would what would kind of the tips that you would have in dealing with kind of someone that's kind of pre- who's prone to kind of binge eating? Yeah, so this is definitely where my psychology degree kind of comes out, and I'm like, do not ask a nutritionist this question. If you have, if you feel like you're binge eating, you need to go to a therapist. Like, I don't care if you if you're like, no, 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 it's like it's not an eating disorder. It's like it's every so often, like it's not a big deal. Like, no, I don't. Like, if you if you have that in your head like that question in your head go to a therapist um, and I like, there's still a stigma there about going to a therapist but I'm like it would be the same as going to a doctor for a checkup if you have a bit of a concern about your health you go to a doctor for a ter- checkup it should be the exact same about your mental health if you have a concern if you're asking this question go to a therapist for a checkup get their opinion like binge eating comes from a, like it can it can have a few sources uh, we know that binge eating is way more likely in people who have a negative body image. Um, so maybe you need to work on that. Maybe it's not got nothing to do with food uh, like and dieting necessarily. It's all stemming from the way that you view yourself. Uh, generally, that can then lead to, you know, wanting to diet and going through periods of restriction, which can then lead to binge eating. It can be emotional. Uh, it could be like because you have a lot of stress in your life and you're using food as a coping mechanism. Um like my recommendation is not to try and fix this on your own. It's going to somebody who's qualified and talking to them about it rather than trying to fix this through nutrition or like through getting that kind of advice. It's a psych- it's massively psychological. And yeah, obviously there's a huge food component there, which is why people go to nutritionists about it. But I do think that people should just look after their mental health and go to a therapist. Like that's, that's it. No, I, I 100% agree with you on that one as well. Um, Another question popped into my head, but I think we've got we've got one question left in regards. Coca Cola seems to be the big thing, a lot, and some people, some of my clients in particular, and other people you see around, and from being in an office environment, a lot of people would drink Coca Cola just to kind of boost themselves up or get that sugar kick. What tip would you have for someone who is kind of drinking a little bit more Coke than kind of recommended? Should they go cold turkey on that? Um, so number one tip is swap to diet like that, make that really simple change so diet coke is crap but coke zero is pretty nice I, um, I think 
well, I mean, there's a big debate about this. Some people prefer Diet Coke to Coke Zero, but I think Coke Zero is the way to go. That's just personal opinion. But yeah, my recommendation is not, don't don't just like try to stop drinking Coke because that probably won't work. You can swap to what I would deem a healthier alternative, which is Coke Zero. So start there. Once you're there and you've like swapped over, you're going to, first of all, have massi- massively reduced your calorie and your sugar intake, which is a step in the right direction. Um, and because somebody's probably wondering, listening to this, uh, artificial sweeteners are completely fine. So don't worry about them. Um, so, yeah, swapping to diet drinks, first of all. Um, but that kind of leads to the issue that I've seen where people become really reliant on diet drinks as their only source of hydration, which is not something that I encourage either. So depending on how much you're drinking, slowly cut down. Like, don't ever just go from, you know, zero to 100. Don't be drinking some and then go to, like, absolutely nothing. You can kind of do it in a phased way that kind of gets you to a number that you're okay with. So maybe, like, two cans a day or, like, a 500 ml bottle a day of a diet drink is fine. That's not going to have any adverse impact on you compared to if you were drinking, like, two liters before. So slowly cut down. Don't try to cut it out all at once because that will probably just increase your cravings. Um, so yeah, something like that. So, you know, maybe week one, you swap to diet diet version first. And then week two, you cut that amount by uh, like 75%. So you just start drinking 75%, so a liter and a bit. And then the next week, you cut down a bit further. So keep going until you're at an amount that, yeah, that's kind of like maybe one bottle a day, maybe two, um, depending on the kind of blood that you have and other ways that you're getting your hydration in. That's, I think that's that's an, that's an amazing answer and thank you so much for all the information. I've definitely learned a lot more about the menstrual cycle uh, and particularly kind of the My Fitness Pal and then I'm definitely going to go out and try that black bean spaghetti from Little Aldi. Uh, if you can find it because it was swiped up really quickly and so many people sending me pictures of like, I found it, I got black You're going to be like Joe Wicks with the midget trees or the broccoli. You're going to set Tesco saw down those pretty quickly when he did that. I really appreciate you. Uh, I know you're on your lunch from work, so I really appreciate you kind of spending your 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 hour uh, with myself. And I've learned so much, and I really hope the listeners learn that as well. And I, you're a huge advocate for MNU as a whole. Uh, you're doing a great job putting so much content out for free for the for the general public. So thank you so much for that. And I will put this up uh, fairly shortly. Is that all right? Yeah, that's so great thank you so much for having me like nutrition is my favorite thing to talk about i could probably keep going for like three hours but i do actually have to get back to work (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much rebecca thank you thank you